Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, a little information for you and the listeners. This is your trigger warning. We're going to be talking about uh, horror movies, horror culture, horror literature, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, child abuse, um, all kinds of curse words. We're going to be talking about some dark stuff, so... If it's not up your alley, maybe check something else out or um, take a minute to gather yourself and come back. Or if it is up your alley, listen to us talk about all kinds of fucked up shit. Woo-hoo. Woo, fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Coming up, we will be interviewing podcaster Zobo with a shotgun and uh, I believe later on to Zoe Smith. Zoe Smith, yes. And later on today, or I think uh, tomorrow, actually, we'll be uh, interviewing director and producer of Circus of the Dead, Cowboys from Hell, and Dollboy, Billy Pond. But today, we have the pleasure of having our guest, Garrett Cook, author and editor of horror and bizarro fiction, and uh, other such novels as Archelon Ranch, Time Pimp, A God of Hungry Walls, which I like that title, and Crisis Boy. Good morning, Garrett. Uh, morning. Uh, thanks for having me. Yes. Our pleasure. Anything you want to plug before we get into the meat of the interview? Um, well, I I think I'd like to uh, direct your listeners to A God of Hungry Walls. It's been out for a while, but um, it's starting to pick up. The Spanish edition's been picking up a lot of steam. And uh, I think that if your listeners are fans of uh, hardcore video nasties, uh, Clive Barker, Edward Lee... A little bit of like anti and a little bit of anti-social Euro Gothic. I think uh, I think they'll appreciate it. Okay, so it's Sounds it's good. abject filth. Nice <laughs> abject filth. Uh, you mentioned that it's uh, you also have a Spanish version. Just in case other listeners are curious, do you have any other uh, language versions? Uh, no, not yet. It's a thing I really want to get into though, because I've uh, I've okay. had a really good experience with European publishers in general and uh just i like that market and i like that fan base a lot okay so english and spanish for now and maybe more in the future check back later (laughs) okay so in this interview we'll be asking three sets of questions covering your childhood teenage years and adulthood to find out what it is about horror that you like uh the idea is that if we come at this from multiple angles sometimes it triggers memories that you had forgotten um but that said, it's not meant to be a therapy session. So if there are any questions you don't want to answer, just say pass and we'll move on. Um, but starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? I grew up in a house that I, I can't be 100% sure, but I grew up in a house that was, by all accounts, of almost all of the residents haunted. And it was uh, a thing that made me feel a lot like it made me feel a lot like an outsider. The kids who grew up around me considered our house like this was like the devil's house. Okay. It was considered a very bad place. We were thought of it. We were regarded as witches uh, really? by many people because we had a church seminary next uh, next town over. And this was the North Shore of Massachusetts. This is like right around Salem. It's witch country uh-huh. is uh, where I came from. That that seeps into things. This feeling of uh, this feeling of otherness, this feeling of being closer to dead than living, and this feeling of uh, pervasive wrongness and strangeness in the world. 
was it an old house? It it was it was a newish house on old ground that it had okay. uh, that crossed over with a lot of uh, with a lot of traumatic stuff. Was the ground sour? There was a possibility there were slaves lynched on the apple tree. There was a trolley crash right around it. It was kind of a perfect storm of. Uh, but I mean, shit. all that stuff was there before you. Got oh yeah, there. no, it was there before we got there. Yes. Oh, you guys didn't install the slave lashing tree. <laughs> no, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Regarded you guys as witches, but you just moved yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, they were uh, they were they were they were kind of weird people. Clearly, you had done your research and you were looking for a good spot to lay your your coven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good good place to call a uh, good place to call up to Haints. Good place to meet the devil uh, and dance in the dead of night. Yeah, apparently. I mean, I can, I can see kids making that kind of thing, but adults. Oh uh, God, we we got some we got some notes. We had some crazy neighbors. Fair, but that happens everywhere. So. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so that uh, changed a lot of my thinking and led me to feeling uh, like like the world was a darker, colder, nastier place than the people around me thought it was. I think. And when I started watching horror films, there was a certain amount of comfort because that's like that's that's what life felt like, and there was order to it, and there was justice to it, and there was sense to it, and that was cool. Hmm. Unlike real life. Unlike real life, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, real life's just fucking nuts. It's just like well, a bunch of things that happen. So when you say that uh, horror was comfortable and felt familiar, was it because it felt familiar compared to the house or compared to how your neighbors were acting towards you or both? Um, compared to what life was like outside of uh, outside of my house, essentially. Mm-hmm. What the outside world felt like. It was like okay. in when I when I was watching a horror film. It was like, yeah, this is this is how life is. This makes sense to me. It's so, uh, it's it's full of violence and cruelty and uh, dead people. So maybe a little wish fulfillment fulfillment in the the sense of the justice that maybe you didn't get in reality. Yeah, no, I absolutely think so. There's okay. there there's a huge there's moral order to horror. Like Stephen King was talk, talks about it as. Uh, in some ways, the most puritanical and Christian of genres, because there's a lot of comeuppance, there's a lot of sense, and you can always see why bad things happen to people in horror. Yeah. Well. With some always. exceptions. Kind of. Yeah. On the more black and white pieces, anyway. Yeah, and the more black and white pieces, and in slasher movies, definitely. Well, yeah. yeah. Slasher You're movies. You're fucking in the woods. You're going yeah. to die. <laughs> well, fucking period. Yeah, yeah well, there's, there's a very... <laughs> There's a very simple and very weird dream causality to them. Very that's extremely easy to trace. Yeah. And that's uh and there's a certain and there's a certain amount of comfort there. And that's the thing I always loved about uh I always loved about Godzilla was my favorite as a kid. Because Godzilla come there's there's two ideas that you get at the center of a Godzilla movie. And one of them is like that nature wants to fix shit, that nature wants to clear up the nonsense we've did, and that that life is going to find a way, whether we want it to or not, that there is, that there is some kind of justice. And then but then in the later ones, there's this interesting new idea that it's possible to be forgiven. Like we see we, we suddenly see the earth attacked by a three headed space dragon. And the thing that and the thing that incinerated us like years before that It's now defending us, yeah. Decides that okay, you get one. Don't fuck <laughs> this up. 
Everybody gets one. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> that, that's <laughs> except Godzilla kind of got Godzilla kind of got softer, but uh, yeah, yeah. during during the during the later show up. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there there there's something like very very comforting and very human and very religious to, about that. The idea that like this, the idea of like a dialogue almost between an Old Testament God and a New Testament kind of God in Mothra talking to Godzilla and them deciding that like humankind is worth saving in Ghidra, a three-headed monster. Hmm. Yeah, and I no, thought that, right. and I thought that that was really nice. Yeah. I never looked at Godzilla in that light, but it is similar to like, uh, you know, biblical old Testament or even like uh, Roman or Greek lore where there's a conversation between two omniscient beings of whether or not to destroy or spare humanity. Yeah, exactly. And there's and it's wonderfully laid out in what seems and what is also like just a really hilarious moment in Ghidra Three-Headed Monster because there's the conversation between like Godzilla and Mothra and the little twins are watching it and one of them suddenly is like oh, Godzilla such language. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually makes sense for an omnipotent being that's been watching us for thousands of years to be this fucking pissed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I haven't seen this one. Are they actually talking in English or whatever, you know, Japanese, um, whatever the, the, the little twins are translating the monster uh, talk as they, yeah. as they talk. Uh, there's one, there is a moment where uh, Godzilla talks in Japanese to another monster and sends it and sends it out to investigate a thing in a later one, which I always find fucking hilarious, but it's not quite that silly back at Ghidra three headed monster. It took him about like seven more years to get completely off the rails. Goofy enough that a giant monster would be set to investigate something because that's not like in their skill set. Just having spikes <laughs> is what this They're guy usually subtle. does. They're not is very he wearing, like a classic yeah. Dick Tracy uh, fucking overcoat and the, the hat, Peek, peeking around the corner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sad, sad, sadly, they did not get him like uh, get him like a trench coat and, yeah. and like glasses and dark glasses. Uh, <sighs> that would that would have been much better. Yeah. <laughs> The tiptoeing would be yeah. the best part because you know, tiptoeing yeah. would still cause minor earthquakes. Just boom, yeah, boom. <laughs> still crushing buildings. Just you know, small ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so grew up in a haunted house. Uh, had some interest in Godzilla. What else uh, impacted you at an early age? I would say Christopher Lee as Dracula. Okay. Uh, the first time wow. I ever saw Dracula in anything, like besides a Count Chocula commercial. I saw Dracula has risen from the grave. And if the first time you see Dracula, it's Dracula has risen from the grave. Like Dracula is a stone cold badass. Dracula is like insurmountably terrible in that movie. You've got like Christopher Lee with the red eyes. And he's like, looks like he's seven and a half feet tall because you're six. And he's dribbling blood down his face. I think, I think he is that tall to begin with, but go ahead. He, he is a big, he was a big dude. Yeah. And like, just looks completely unstoppable and insurmountable. Just fucking awesome. Like, I love Christopher Lee Dracula for that because he's so imposing and he's so physical and he's so like, he's so in your face and feral all the time. Like he's just, he, he's very monstery and very Transylvanian. 
and you don't necessarily get those kind of mannerisms from other Draculas. Mm-hmm. I like the I like Frank Langella a lot. I think Frank Langella did a good job. I think Gary Oldman certainly had his moments. And um, so you, yeah. so you weren't scared by this uh, Dracula. You wanted to be this Dracula. I was um, actually no. I was fucking mortified by this Dracula. I thought Dracula oh, okay. like nothing's gonna nothing's gonna put an end to Dracula. Holy mm. shit! Like then I saw Brides of Dracula and watched Van and watched Van Helsing putting an end to these vampires, and then saw horror and got very impressed with Peter Cushing. Okay. Because Peter Cushing's like he's he's this little dude in like a silk kimono. He's jumping on a table to physically wrestle with Dracula and repulse him with two candlesticks. Mm-hmm. He's like got this bite on his neck and he's cauterizing it with a hot branding iron. I, I, so you see this thing that seems unstoppable and insurmountable, but just this little British guy in his this little British guy in his forties is gonna do his damnedest and is gonna like spaz around and stop Dracula. Which, if you see Dracula has risen from the grave first, looks virtually impossible. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I thought that was great. Like I was hope I hoped uh, after seeing that, like maybe one day I could kill vampires. Then I found out there's no vampires, um, <laughs> and then I realized like it'd be cooler to be a vampire because there's no actual vampires. Like, I mean, there's social vampires. Oh yeah, there's definitely yeah. social vampires. Yeah, there's influencers. Emotional vampires. That's close. Mm-hmm. And emotional oh. vampirism. Yeah. But yeah, so, so yeah. I thought that I thought that Cushing as Van Helsing was a really fascinating figure. Yeah. And I thought that that it, that it was just amazing that someone would try and stand up to this thing. Particularly okay. like just a little weaselly spazzy guy like that. So a small pattern that I might be seeing starting here is relating to power? Relating You're- to power and justice, yeah. Okay. It was... Uh, and sense the idea that there were the idea that there were bad that there were certain kinds of badness out there and that you can understand them and that you can see them coming and that they're classified is very like is i think very liberating for children yeah i i can kind of see that i mean when i was a kid um my favorite tv show was the kung fu uh with david carradine the original one from the 70s mm-hmm. yeah. and for me, it was the same thing. It was because a lot of the things that they said in the show made sense in a yep. way that it seemed like none of my parents or older relatives uh, or even any of the kids or adults I knew in real life understood or had any relation to. Like, there was just a truth. Kane's a good role just- model. Kane's a cool dude. Yeah, that too. But not even Cain uh, as a person, but just the logic that was talked about in a lot of the things that they said in that show that, like you say, it made sense to me in a way that in a, in a world that didn't make sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, that can be said yeah. for most any fiction or or non. Uh, it's the escapist uh, or the escapism in it. You know, the real world never makes sense or it seems to just constantly either not go your way or, or be unpredictable and a negative connotation, then yeah, it's good to escape into something that makes sense for once. Uh, I mean, kind of, but it wasn't escapism in that I would, 
I didn't. I mean, minors. Yeah, yeah. Maybe escapism isn't the right term for it. Just, um, I don't know, peering into a window of a world that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. At least, at least from my, per- uh, at least from where I was at, it was just uh, I wasn't necessarily trying to escape. I guess for me, this the word escapism has a, a sort of a context of I'm going to make a world that makes sense, even if it's not real. Whereas to me, this was more of a discovering a world that made sense uh, mm-hmm. that I didn't create and wasn't like the one that I inhabited. And yeah, I could escape to it when it when I came upon it, but. It wasn't one that I created, if that makes sense. I think that modeling moral order for people is is a thing that you see in horror films and in kung fu films and in superhero films. And it can help people establish their own moral order because you look at things and you kind of – you encounter stuff you haven't seen or would never see. And you encounter hypotheticals you wouldn't encounter and you say like, this is a line I wouldn't cross. This is a line I wouldn't allow anywhere around me to cross. This is a thing I don't want to see. What should I do about that? What should I do about parasitic people? What should I do about the, what should I do about destroying the environment? What should I do about, you know, racism? All these things. How to establish your values and boundaries. And that's really important as a kid, I think. I definitely agree that there are some genres or some, I don't even know if genre is the right word, but there's definitely stories in horror that align with what you're saying. But then there's also a lot of horror that's exactly the opposite of oh, yeah. where the whole point of the horror is to cross the boundaries and freak you out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, the point is to show that moral order has broken down. And more to the point to say there is no moral order and fuck your sense of uh, of desiring to have one because they're never going to be one, you know, and now what are you going to do? Yeah, um, no, definitely. Or also just simple, just saying like it, it's only there if you carry it. Mm-hmm. Like you can only have the, the, the ground underneath your feet's yours, you're yours, but everything outside you, it, it's very difficult to, to impossible to, to absurd to impose moral order on, but you got you and you got your boundaries. Yeah. So are you also a fan of or not a fan of this other kind of horror that I'm talking about? I'm I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, I'm not like over time I developed a taste for things that were more, more aggressively antisocial or revealed how antisocial society is. And I think those are really important stories as well. And are also, uh, kind of tests of who we are and where we stand. A lot of my favorite films are things you survive. Like I love Antichrist, but, and after watching Antichrist, I feel like this is a thing I went through. This is a thing I endured and won at the end of, and I got to have that experience and keep that with me and learn these things and feel these things Okay. in exchange for, you know, in exchange for getting through the onslaught. It's a journey. It's a, you know, it's, it's like kind of a harrowing of hell. Yeah. To give them the challenge. It's the hero's journey. Yep. Yeah. So this acquired taste for these antisocial stories over time, I'm, you know, at the moment trying to focus on childhood, I'm guessing that came later or did that start in childhood too? Or some of that did start as uh, some of that did start as a kid. I saw Hellraiser for the first time when I was eight. Oh, nice. And that, uh, that at first bothered me a lot. 
and I saw the creeping flesh, which is less, uh, it's less gory, definitely. It's less oversexed, definitely. And by oversexed, I'm not saying that as a value judgment. I'm saying that, like, it's a world where sexuality is, like, in focus and at the center of it, at the center of its cosmology. The creeping flesh is less that, but at the same time, there are only horrible people in the creeping flesh. There is only, there's only moral ugliness and like skeleton animated by Peter Cushing's pure moral turpitude and dislike for his other human, for other human beings. And I thought that that was like, that was really cool, but it was also a really scary idea. Yeah. That but there was, was a something with that, nothing but malice and no good intentions at all. Just, I want to hurt people. Yeah. And what was, you mentioned it being both cool and scary. What, what did you find cool about it? Well, what I found cool about it was it was this awesome skeleton walking around killing people. <laughs> that was cool. Like when you're a little, when, when you're a kid, like kind of skeletons walking around doing skeleton things and murdering people and shit. Like that's kind of awesome. <laughs> that's just a fun thing to watch. But the actual implications of the skeleton and what the skeleton meant and what the skeleton was doing and like. The fact that the skeleton was intrinsically connected to this dark Peter Cushing, this anti-Van Helsing, hmm. uh, was kind of jarring in some ways. Hmm. It was just watching uh, the idea that the supernatural don't necessarily adhere to a conventional morality. Same is also true of Godzilla, which you had brought up earlier, too. Yeah, no, yeah, that's like that kind of existent that 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 kind of like existential anguish you get out of uh, you got Gojira and King of the Monsters for sure. You know, there's even moments in Gojira where your people are people are questioning God and questioning God's justice and wondering what they did to deserve this because they've already survived a nuclear attack and this thing has come back to haunt them again. <laughs> And they're kind of also reminds me of some of the, their kids. Kind of also reminds me of some of the Greek plays uh, from ancient Greece that. Oh yeah, certainly. You know, yeah. were also morality plays, but also not dissertations, but discussions about you know what makes sense to God doesn't necessarily make sense to a human being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sophocles and Oedipus Rex famously says, "Let no man be happy if he lives." Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's like it's kind of a bitter pill. And then yeah. you see Oedipus Rex, and by the end of Oedipus Rex, you think like, yeah, that checks out. He's, he's a lot more than unhappy. <laughs> he's, he's so much more than unhappy. <laughs> Things are so much worse. And like, and it's only the, 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 that one's just like the tip of the iceberg in, in even that whole, even even that series of plays. Things yeah. get worse in Antigone, and he's just the- like chilling in Oedipus of Colonists, and nothing goes right from there. Just it's ruin, funny you brought ruin, up ruin. Antigone. It's funny you brought up Antigone because uh, Jeff Burke just posted something a couple days ago on Facebook about a cat <laughs> that came into his uh, yeah. uh, cat <laughs> thing, who's named Antigone. Yeah, no, that that was actually uh, that was actually fresh on my mind when you brought yeah. up uh, when you brought up Greek drama because yeah. that one is uh, that one is one of my favorites. Mm. After yeah, I I like Oedipus at Colonus because it's kind of an early King Lear. That's mm-hmm. the uh, second one of those, but Antigone just Antigone really stings. 
because it's just all about it's all about political pride and all about how much we suffer for we suffer pride. for the ego and pride of our politicians and how ugly that is. So we've got a couple different things here. Um, grew up in a haunted house. Godzilla, Christopher Lee's Dracula, Van Helsing. There were times that you were scared of these things, but also times that you were excited. Was there? Do you remember there being a shift from being scared to wow, this is cool at a certain point in your life? I think that I was um, I was kind of numb to a lot of uh, children are very plastic in certain ways. Mm. Like when you're a kid, your brain like takes a sudden shock and then it bounces right back into shape. Yeah. Like you can see something incredibly scary when you're when you're a kid. But you're not necessarily able to, like, you know, process it. Yeah, you know, or uh, order the components of the mind, or you know, like Lovecraft says in, in Call of Cthulhu, that's that's kind of going for children. Uh, children have that going for them. They just kind of they kind of bounce back from stuff. And I I think I actually got I I got more afraid of more things I looked at as I grew older because I was able to understand them deeper. And I was left thinking about them more. And there were a lot of things where it wasn't necessarily the image on the screen that gave me pause. It was the ideas behind it. Like the, uh, for, for example, like the abuse and the manipulation that goes on in Rosemary's Baby mm-hmm. was way scarier than the idea of, than the idea of the devil or the Antichrist. Particularly if you live in a family that that is reality. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's a really it's it's a it's a tough idea to process that the people around you have that much control over you, and that the people around you can manipulate you in that way. How old were you when you saw that? Uh, I was about eleven. Oh wow, that's yeah, that's that's a young age to see Rosemary's Baby. It kind of was in some ways. There were a lot of things I didn't gather the first time I saw it, of course, but I saw it again. And I liked it fine. And contextualize a lot, but it it didn't have that uh, that same hit that I got the first time I watched it because there were a lot of notions in it that got uh, that got kind of heady. Like I was actually more scared of uh, horror with extremely heady concepts when I was that age than I was of uh, just any physical special effect I was looking at. So having seen Hellraiser at eight and Rosemary's Baby at eleven, I'm curious. Were your parents not paying attention to what you were watching? Did they? <laughs> well, uh, we had a bootleg video store inside our stairs. Inside your stairs? Uh, yes. My oh. uh, yeah. My my grandfather had this friend who uh, he would trade rare stamps for boxes of decontextualized dubbed videotapes, and he would hide the decontextualized dubbed videotapes inside our stairs. Like our stairs were a video shelf in the basement, essentially. That's kind of awesome like did you know it, oh it was awesome i i saw a lot of shit i didn't quite understand yeah. i saw weekend when i was like 11 because i saw in a month i, I saw in this uh, book on the great films that this was the most disturbing one of the most disturbing films ever made to the critic who wrote that in some ways that tracks and in other ways like weekend is kind of a bitter pill but yeah i watched weekend because i thought like oh boy i'm in for some scary shit and ideologically, I was in for some scary shit, but the actual stuff on uh, stuff on the screen was uh, 
a lot less interesting. And how old uh, were you when you saw that? Uh, that was about uh, that was about ten. Okay, so you were reading reviews talking about scary shit at ten and seeking yeah. it out. Oh yes. How? Why? Because <laughs> <laughs> we had a book on the uh, we had a book on the great films, and I read that through, and I was very fascinated with canons as a kid. I wanted to contextualize and understand and categorize ideas and explore canons and gather as much as I could about human culture and gather as much as I could about the arts and how to do it right. I have to know what excite, I have to find things that excite me and engage me intellectually because I'm not being engaged intellectually by my peers. And, uh, I was kind of, I was alone a lot. Like I had friends, but my friends were uh, not into that kind of stuff. Other than occasionally, I just find like some R-rated bloodbath thing that we watch on sleepover, like Leviathan or some shit. This book on great films what, did that belong to your grandfather's friend too? Oh no, that was my mother's. Was she a fan of film in general or horror? Or- um. Oh, she loved. Uh, she loved horror movies. We there we did frequently watch things like uh, like the Christopher Lee movies and whatnot. But if it was something like uh, Hellraiser or Leviathan that was going on, like while she was uh, while she was at work, mm-hmm. my grandfather would be watching me, and he'd fall asleep, and then <laughs> I would traipse down the stairs, and I would uh, pick out a film to watch. Okay, so your mom loved horror. She had this book on film. Um... Yeah, her favorite ever was The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> It's just, just, it's, it's so trashy and sleazy and fun. It's, uh, and actually has this, has this deeply antisocial moral core to it. It is really interesting in that particular, uh, in that particular brand of 50s horror. You've got movies like Hideous Sun Demon and The Manster, and all of those are just kind of, are, are just these, uh, sleazy noir type things in which a guy turns into, uh, just, something hideous or a woman develops psychokinetic powers when she's a, a brain in a tray. <clears throat> All right. So your mom loved horror. She had this book you were reading through it. I'm guessing she knew you were reading through it. Um, it yeah. between that and the collection under the stairs, um, you know, yeah. you had this thing that fascinated you, as you mentioned, um, you weren't necessarily intellectually engaged by what was going on around you. So you were kind of, fascinated by this yeah i was i was the kind of kid who would just like wake up in the middle of the night and be like what's in the d volume of the encyclopedia (laughs) i haven't read the d volume and so i would just like you know so i was kind of like that but i was with comic books i don't know if i would have done the the d volume in the encyclopedia um i got i got that way i got that way with comics too like in my uh in my teen years, and then when Wikipedia came along, I just like I occasionally read comics I haven't read on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, still, because I'll just like get this like the just. I don't know what Hawkman was up to in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> the things to keep you up at night. <laughs> How the fuck am I supposed to sleep if I don't know what Hawkman was up to in 1987? Yeah. Yes. Not possible. August of 1987. Yeah, in August 1987. (laughs) No, I can relate to that because as I've gotten older too, I've also used Wikipedia for, you know, like Chris and I will talk about movies. And instead of watching the movie, I'll just go read the plot because it's (laughs) like I can do that in five minutes and then I get the gist of it and that's good. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
as far as knowing whether or not you were scared by this stuff or um, excited by it, you kind of actually flipped it on me and you said you're more excited by it first and then got scared as you got older and understood more of it. That's kind of interesting. You had your mother to share this with. Um, I'm guessing she was not afraid of horror. She enjoyed it. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, My mother, uh, yeah, she had like just every Stephen King book, every Coons book. Uh, some Barker. So did she say anything to you or kind of educate you on how to approach the material to say that this isn't sp- something to be scared of or not really. My mother was, um, she was a person you kind of hung out with. She didn't like it. She didn't like imparting lessons to kids. And I'm not saying that as a value judgment. It's, it's just like some parents are, you know, just trying to get along and go through their lives and like, make sure it doesn't die. But yeah, you know, I didn't mean it in the sense of her sending you down and having a discussion with you about it. Uh, you know, even one comment offhanded can be a lot to it. Oh no, sometimes. absolutely. And yeah, no, that, uh, that didn't really happen much. No, it's, it's a thing I developed. Uh, I developed largely on my own because I was, uh, I was sorting through things and kind of just had this librarian impulse and so I learned about I learned about criticism from this librarian impulse because I wanted to know as much as possible about the thing, but realized that like just looking at lists of stuff isn't gonna isn't gonna teach you everything you need to know. No, so I decided I, to go into analysis to go into analysis more. And I guess in a different way of looking at it, her sort of you know, Leslie's fair attitude. About no, exactly. It, could, it was, it, it was good for me in, some in, ways. It, in its own way. Yeah. Did any of this stuff trigger any lasting fears that have stuck with you? Generally, I think, uh, they, I think they agitated fears that I already had in certain ways. Would you mind sharing what those are? Oh no, not at all. Uh, I, I have kind of, uh, I have this body snatcher thing because of, uh, my general distrust of uh, my general distrust of other human beings and seeing like how quickly they could flip. Mm. So I got that through invasion of the body snatchers. I got that through Stepford wives. I got that through Rosemary's baby, uh, funny games later hit me really hard on that one. Sudden unpredictable human behavior is a thing I find, uh, scarier than almost anything else. Really? Like for good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have I've had very uh it's it's kind of a rough thing when you're like uh when you're like in Boston and Portland because you just suddenly encounter people who are uh kinda on the verge of seeming like they've been body snatched or something. <laughs> you get drugs. like yo no, definitely drugs. <laughs> drugs, mental illness, yeah. No, you get people with just like weird, sudden, herky jerky movements who are talking like, who are talking utter nonsense at you, mm-hmm. and that's Especially like in the eighties. Yeah, that is true, and that's that's yeah. So I think that's that's I think the big thing for me is just the inconstancy of human beings and their and their potential to engage in very disorganized and harmful behavior. Yeah. And I can see how that ties into, uh, you know, yeah. Wanting moral order. Definitely. Well, that too, but I was thinking lack of control, 
which yeah. then leads to wanting more order and power to control the order and make sense of the uh you know smooth out the the imperfections as as it might be oh yeah no absolutely the idea that like that you have to that you frequently have to count on other people is uh is still a scary thing for me yeah there's a challenge of being you know overly dependent overly independent and then you know the the healthy thing is to be somewhere in the middle but how do you find that how do you gauge it how do you learn it if you're if you haven't been taught it it's it's a difficult thing um did you participate participate in halloween as a kid oh we loved halloween we were we were so in halloween yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it was it was way. actually part of why the hardcore Christians uh, considered our house a devil house. <laughs> okay, explain that. <laughs> uh, like we had um, we had serious Halloween decorations. Okay. We had uh, wooden tombstones. We had uh, bodies on. We had bodies on the lawn. Mm-hmm. We had uh, turned a hat rack, a couple of hat racks with just some cloaks and stuff, and a wedding dress into a. Uh, to kind of like a grim reaper wedding outside mm. and we were uh, in constant competition with our neighbors across the street who were <laughs> substantially richer but much less resourceful than we were mm. and we're we we made uh, we made the front page for our local of our local paper a few times with our halloween decorations they made the front page of our local paper a few times with their halloween decorations but mm. it was absolutely war every year like the Halloween version of the uh, Christmas lights war, huh? Exactly. Yeah. We didn't give a fuck about Christmas lights. <laughs> Did you have a favorite costume or favorite decoration? I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed just watching and creating the makeshift corpses and stuffing them with like newspaper and soda bottles and shit. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that like clothes and some fake blood and some tempera paint that suddenly turned into a dead human being that's sitting on your lawn mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. It's like the Christmas gift I gave Chris a couple years ago. Yeah. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a skeleton fully clothed and also stuffed with newspaper, but all wrapped up in garbage bags and then wrapped up with um, <clears throat> like tinsel garland with a giant bow on it. It's just like, this is the best Christmas present ever. It's a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I ended up being able to put this uh, put this knowledge to use uh, in college when I got to plan the college Halloween party, and I wanted to do mm. something that was like historical and impactful okay. and sad and kind of angry at the same time as awesome Halloween decorations. So we uh, recreated uh, the crime scenes from the Whitechapel murders, including Ripper graffiti. Mm-hmm. And just uh, created uh, dead prostitutes uh, stuffed with livers acquired from Hannaford's and such, uh, just all around the place, uh, posed in uh, posed in similar manners to the five canonical Ripper victims. Nice. So I imagine it was a really weird thing to be stumbling through drunk and super high, and I kind of enjoyed that as well. <laughs> Because yeah. it's, it's it's just fun knowing that you're fucking with your classmates while they're really high. Mm-hmm. Well, hmm. was there ever a time when you were really terrified of something as a child in real life? I my my grandfather was in a uh, was in a psych ward a couple of times. I went to visit him once. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the neighbor who brought me uh, lost track of me. <laughs> and I, yeah, no, it, it's hilarious. Yeah. But I was left wandering around the psych ward. I mean, Jesus. I, uh, trying to find my grandfather. Okay. I am curious, you mentioning this now, you, you also mentioned that you saw Hellraiser as a, a, a young age. Had you seen Hellraiser 2 at a young age? And if so, did that one scene maybe trigger some when I saw hell When I finally saw Hellraiser 2, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that brought back some memories. Right? <laughs> was Walking like, down a corridor, shit. hearing people screaming behind walls, or behind doors left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was uh, yeah, that was exactly it. And I was watching. I was seeing people just suddenly uh, just transform before my eyes, and I'm like just, I was just trying to bring my like, grandfather some fucking candy. <laughs> and I'm just imagining like the staff watching you walk down the halls and just letting you go. Like <laughs> yeah, right. Like oh, there's another one. It's cool. It's, it's fine. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he's fine. It, was, it was really weird. Yeah, like a oh, lot of my life, uh, I, I was about nine. A lot of my life was like, is an adult going to intervene at some point? <laughs> right, <laughs> oh, exactly. Was a was is a good description of my childhood. <laughs> Someone probably should. <laughs> and then I just like shrug and like, I guess an adult is not going to intervene. Um, you know, my parents did what they could, but like sometimes, you know, there are situations where an adult is not going to intervene, and like your neighbor like you drops the ball, yourself. and you're wandering around the psych ward, just trying to bring your grandfather some Boston baked beans. Yeah, I mean that's that's another element of it too, like just letting your neighbor take your kid to see his grandfather in a psych ward. That unless <laughs> they were really good friends, that oh, they they were really good friends. Weird. They were the neighbors who we had the Halloween prank, war, the Halloween right. decoration war with. It was, I uh, figured you. it was a friendly duel. Just imagining that conversation. Hey, would you mind taking my kid to the psych ward to see his grandfather? Sure. <laughs> oh, sure. You want me to yeah, stop I, off at the uh, the slaughterhouse <laughs> on the way, or, or maybe the local prison? Yeah. Well, well, let's go to crack out. I mean. Yeah, spooky well, roller disco. In, in <laughs> retrospect, in retrospect, if it was the neighbor that el- that was having the you know the horror battle with them, it's the, uh, the neighbor probably wouldn't have a problem. With you. Oh yeah, sure, mm-hmm. okay, no, exactly. They probably, <laughs> they probably looked at it as as oh great, I get to go to a psych ward. Yeah, th- this that's, town that's was where uh, they lost you. They were wandering around checking shit out. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In, in some ways, this town was classified by a combination of violent curiosity and flat affect. Yeah, like just very. Uh, New Englanders are really stoic. It's just okay when horrible things happen. Yeah, you get over it. Yeah, yeah. Walk it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, walk it off. Exactly. That's uh, the state motto of Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you were to summarize uh, what it was about horror that made you happy as a child, what would you? How would you summarize that? What made me happy as a child was feeling at home, feeling like the world made sense, and just feeling like awesome shit happened. Like skeletons ran around killing people. Mm-hmm. It was a world where there were like giant monsters and skeletons and shit, and that was cool. Mm-hmm. You know, divorced to the value judgments, and then like, I got smart enough to understand what I was looking at, and then I stopped and grew more introspective about it, but mm-hmm. not less curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's how big, or that's a uh... Reasoning comes up a lot, I think, when it comes to what exactly was it about horror at an early age or at any age that interested you. And uh, 
um, I think I myself said this as well, and it's just that some of the stuff just looks cool. Sometimes yeah. it's just the efficacy of the makeup design, or you know, like a cool werewolf, uh, a cool werewolf transformation that it just looks interesting. So you you forget about the macabre and the horrible things that are happening for a minute. You're like, wow, that looks awesome. And when you're a kid, it's kind of like being in international waters. Like, there's not necessarily repercussions. You recover quickly and everything goes, and anything goes, really. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. actually have less empathy for things that happen to people on a screen when you're a little kid, too. Yeah. I don't know. I was going to say, there's a lot of adults that don't have much empathy for things. That's true, too. Those are called sociopaths. That is true, yeah. So what were some of the uh, scary stories or books or movies that influenced you during your teenage years? Uh, Well, I read Joyce Carol Oates' Zombie. And it's, uh, her work is fantastic. Just, she really gets into that, that antisocial core and the breakdown of, uh, the breakdown of morals and the breakdown of, uh, the breakdown of human minds. And just has a real psychosexual intensity to all her stuff. Mm. Like, I love her book Haunted Tales of the Grotesque. That collection was amazing and huge influence on me. Because it it combined like really it combined really beautiful, really aesthetic writing, and good strong rhythm. I have a poetry background as well, so I loved like I love strong rhythms, and her work was just it was so pleasing to me in so many ways because she was capable of beautifully describing and beautifully depicting horrific things happening. That's kind of where like. That, that that's kind of where I have a lot more patience for Argento than I kind of feel like I should sometimes. Because, <laughs> like, Italian horror, it's so aesthetically beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if you start thinking about what's happening on the screen, <laughs> you, can completely lo- you can completely lose it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of Italian horror is just like that. It's, like, great visual aspects and lighting. And visually, it, it looks spectacular. And you get wrapped up in that, but the moment you start thinking about the plot, you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, the <laughs> psychology in particular, uh, it's, there, there's, some really, there, there, there's some really funny psychological leaps, mm-hmm. like in Torso. I don't know if you've seen that one. I have not seen that one. It's on my list. We need to get around to it. It's, it's the, I'm not going to spoil it, but like when you see the end of Torso and why it was done, you were probably going to laugh your ass off. <laughs> okay. Like this, this is th- these motivations and what happened to bring about these motivations are so are, are so hilariously disparate that like fucking change the toilet pol- paper roll <laughs> <laughs> or even it's, worse, it's, it's of that level. <laughs> it goes over the top. Yeah. yeah, and this and this frequently happened. And yeah, that that frequently is the sort of thing in Jalo. <laughs> was like I gave my son a doll once, <laughs> and now he's killing people. <laughs> he's killed like thirteen nude models because of it, because he just wants to have a doll again. That's the sort of like it's... the heads never go on quite the same afterwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I enjoy the I enjoy really aesthetic depictions of really terrible things. And uh, Oates was a master of that. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed Lovecraft when I first encountered Lovecraft, uh, like as a preteen. 
I still really enjoy Lovecraft in certain uh, in certain ways, but like there's ways in which he is tremendously lazy intellectually, and ways mm-hmm. in which he is a very rigorous world builder. Mm-hmm. You're not the first person to say that, but go ahead. And, and they sometimes happen in the same, like in the same story, in the same sentence. Yeah, and there's there is something uh, there's something admirable about his use of negative space. I think actually is a very important uh, is a very important part of the arts and is a very important phenomenon in the arts. This kind of ties back in with what you were saying a moment ago about wanting to know what great art was. Was there some maybe member of your family that impressed you on? great art or was that just something you picked up on your own my family uh, is just very very heavy into collecting books they went to flea markets and such cool. acquired large just large lots of volumes and my grandfather uh whose house we all lived in uh just thought it was very important to have a ton of books around he didn't Did necessarily he like <laughs> read all of them or understand all of them or care about all of them. He was a, he was a dude who grew up like, you know, at a dairy farm in Vermont that would one day become a ski resort. And then he went and became a jet engineer because he had an IQ in the two hundreds mm-hmm. and became fascinated with collecting books. And so there were all these books and all these videos. And I kind of, in some ways I grew up inside a library Neat. and that was great. Yeah. Like it was a horrifying library that made terrible, weird noises. And sometimes you would feel profoundly like you weren't alone and you'd see like a tall guy in a dark hat glaring at you out of the corner of your eye, which was not your grandpa. No, no. My grandfather was like five, six. This dude was like six foot seven. All right. So at this point you said, I guess already starting to get more scared of things, you know, you're starting to, you know, intellectualize and start to understand. Well, actually, I mean, based on some of the stuff you were saying, you were seeing it even eight and 11. I mean, I guess there was some point where you had already started doing that and now you're sort of exploring the art of it. Yeah. I was uh I was less serious about horror and more serious about lit fic uh as a teenager. And then my first year of college I got back into uh got back into my interest in horror. Because mm. I realized that my I realized that my work was too heavily infused with horror. That I wasn't writing literary fiction at all. And you decided to dive I decided to lean into what I do yeah. well. And okay. what I'm actually interested in, stop lying about what I want my work to look like. Yeah. So there wasn't. And I think that's like an important a, thing for any artist. Yeah. So yeah, there, there wasn't like necessarily a catalyst that got you back into uh, writing horror. It was just like you know, you know what? I think this is my uh, my core interest. So you just decided to return to it because it was more. Well, also like people who were critiquing my lit fic were just always saying like this is horrifying and repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, uh, these people are not horrifying Like, exactly. This is my yeah, basic stuff. You want to see horrifying or repulsive? God, no one's even gotten skinned alive in this. Yet. Yeah. No. Well, that was kind of where their issues started. Uh, I, yeah. No, I was just, I was very unaware of uh, the amount of violence and the amount of, like, normalized uh, perversity in my work and that it was going to be jarring to readers in the same way. Like my mom, (laughs) like I think in some ways, like I am like, I am like my mom in that my mother uh, was a very unsuccessful mystery writer. 
because she did not understand what mystery stories were like. <laughs> they were like her mystery stories were like H.G. Lewis novels or like H.G. Lewis movies, but infused with uh, like real true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. So it had the motivations of like a commercial crime thriller, like, oh, this guy's just in love with you. But instead, like the reporter who like the killer is in love with just leaves like someone's head full of jizz in her uh, in her fridge. Hmm. I was just going to say, Chris and would so like it's that just book. like this. Uh, this is not like, yeah. Oh, no, it was, it was in some ways very awesome. And it actually led me to appreciate H.G. Lewis when I saw it, because there's a certain amount of like a certain amount of grindhouse tone death to the way she was trying to tell a commercial mystery novel. Everything was just too fucking was just way too fucking horrifying for a commercial mm-hmm. mystery novel. She was ahead of her time. And it was kind of it was kind of funny. And I didn't realize until I was writing like so-called literary fiction that like I was so heavily infused with horror. <laughs> yeah. What? This is just what our family does. Yeah. This is yeah, this no exactly. This is just this is just our Adams family <laughs> shit. <laughs> Did you participate in Halloween uh, as a teen? I still enjoyed like I still enjoyed dressing up for uh, dressing up for Halloween. I enjoyed taking part in the decorations. It was tough parking wise and such, of course, but like Salem is fucking magic at Halloween. True. True. Yeah, I bet. And I I loved Salem at Halloween. I applied for a job working at the uh, working at the Witch Museum, but uh, that didn't manage to pan out. Nice. Oh, you know what? One question I forgot to ask about uh, going back to childhood: any scary dreams or reoccurring dreams? Yeah, I had uh, I had sleep paralysis. Oh no! As a child, that's, yeah. that's not common. No, it's not. Yeah, surgeons. Surgeons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like with you know the scalpels and shit. Oh, you mean the, just the like, dreams? The dreams, yeah. Sleep paralysis dreams, yeah. And they just like go to work. Well, yeah, that's. Uh... That's a new twist on the sleep paralysis dreams. Usually people are saying, you know, it's just some dark figure standing over their bed and they can't move. You were being operated on and not uh, able to move. That yeah, no, I, I fucking wish. Yeah, no, that was like when I saw the nightmare, uh, that was like that, that was it was good to have some solidarity there because like there were some people who saw like the really freaky shit. And I'm like, good. I'm glad I wasn't alone in the really freaky shit from sleep paralysis. Yeah. But yeah, so that was uh, that was one that was one of the main ones. And I never met my father, so I frequently had dreams about my father being uh, just something that wasn't a person. Oh, I didn't realize you had never met your father. Oh uh, yes, yeah. I frequently had dreams about uh, <clears throat> that he was just not a person, mm-hmm. and that I was by extension not a person. That's hmm. interesting. So yeah, I was thinking you were gonna say it was like. Uh like the paralysis dreams that I said other people have had where you have that figure standing over the bed. Maybe he doesn't have a face because you never saw the face, but you took that a step further in the fact that the concept of your father was in the dream, but not a person. And therefore you being his offspring were also not a person. That's how old were you when you had these dreams? Because that's pretty deep. I had them probably from about like five to 10. Huh? Like I would just understand that like, I knew I didn't have a father. And I knew that, like, there was some sort of weird secret. It was kind of funny. My mother, because she was uh, she was stationed in Arizona in the Marines, mm-hmm. and there was a photo of her with Billy D. Williams because they were filming Return of the Jedi at the time. Nice. And so I saw this photo, and as a small child, for, an ento- for like three days, I thought my dad was Billy D. Williams. Your dad is Lando Calrissian! And I thought, like, and 
I, I thought my mother was just ashamed that he betrayed his best friend to the Empire. <laughs> so, like, for three days, yeah, I thought my dad was killing Dean Williams. Seems, seems like and something then, a child like, would think, yeah. It, no, exactly. And then my mother was That's why like, she left him. that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Uh, like, like, I know you're a child. But like, Damn, that's really dumb. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's just... We, we, we had uh, radical and honest communication, uh, mm. to say the least, in my household. She was a Marine. Uh, yeah. yeah, she was. No, exactly. Uh, counterintelligence. Yeah. So, like, I, I knew uh, I knew growing up that, like, I would not be able to get away with shit. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, did anything in your teenage years trigger any uh, fears that you, you know, new fears, existing fears? I spent some time in a wheelchair hmm. uh, senior year of high school. Because I walk, I worked really hard to lose weight. I lost uh, sixty-eight pounds wow. over the course of one summer. Wow! By walking twenty-four miles a day, that'll do it. Uh, there was nobody to alert me though uh, that you'd be damaging your knees. A three hundred pound, yeah, no, exactly. That a three hundred pound seventeen-year-old going down to two hundred thirty pounds uh, should not walk twenty-four miles a day. Yeah, I got a uh, I got a severe stress fracture, uh, left distal tibia, and uh, was put in a wheelchair and uh, prescribed diazepam for my anxiety mm. because oncologists are uh, not the best on bedside manner. So I spent uh, I spent the first half of my senior year in a wheelchair, uh, very very doped up, and had a lot of dreams about that, and still have uh, a lot of. A, a big obsession with uh, body horror and like the body's capacity to betray us. Mm-hmm. And I love, I, I obviously like, I love Cronenberg for that. Oh yes, because he's all about body treason in every possible way, mm. and Tetsuo and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about body horror in that light. I mean, I, I've always understood that body horror is is that uh, visceral and effective because it's it's invasive. You. You know, mm-hmm. it, it brings the horror or the discomfort really close to home and the fact that you're watching something where someone's body is is very intimate. But there is that aspect you just mentioned of it's it's a way of your body betraying you because, you know, say like in a Cronenberg film where someone's flesh is twisted into some malformation that they they didn't want or they didn't expect. No, you exactly. expect your body to behave and, and act normal. And I guess in a way that kind of brings it... Um, I don't want to keep saying this phrase, but close to home, for lack of a better term, in another way, and as you're older, too, because that is a very real horror that your body starts betraying you. Like, you can't mm-hmm. oh, exactly. get up without grunting, or, you know, you get random pains in your back after you're 40 or older. The thing that, you know, previously was a powerhouse and invincible is now saying, nah, nah, I'm, I'm going to fuck up now occasionally at random. Yeah, because uh, so much horror becomes so much horror is, I think, really strong because it it capitalizes and deals with our lack of trust in an institution or an idea yeah. or a person. Mm-hmm. But like the really, really intense stuff frequently is about you can't trust you. Yeah. Like you've got. I mean, that's the lycanthrope stories. That's the body horror story. Is the idea that you can't even, you can't even count on yourself anymore. Yeah, 
And that's a really scary premise. Well, it is. Like, for anybody who has had to be independent in any way, the idea that, like, the last person you have, you don't have that guy. That guy's <laughs> not even on your side anymore. Well, it's not seven billion to one. It's seven billion and one to one. Yeah. To you. You know, anybody who has ever leaned back too far in a chair knows the feeling of, of that moment where you just know you're about to fall. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in general, whether you want to call it horror or not, losing something that you used to trust and realizing that you can't trust it anymore is like that moment. Yeah. It's that initial fear of, Oh shit, what's about to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because once you cross over that, that thing that you could trust before you can no longer trust everything is unknown. It's the the only known is that you can't trust it anymore. And the the big unknown is what's going to happen next. Yeah, it, it makes the soul true. It makes the soul truth of the world of predatory cosmos. Mm-hmm. All right, so that makes sense too. Uh, the wheelchair dream, um, uh, fear of crippling yourself, also ties in with power or the lack of thereof. Losing, yeah, it. lack of yeah, generally like a lack of power, a lack of agency. Yeah, starting to see some common themes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um. Let's uh, let's move into adulthood. So you mentioned that uh, you had started writing more horror in your adult years. Did you? Well, actually, I guess we could back up a second and and say I'm guessing you started writing in your teenage years. Uh yeah. My first, uh, I I got the first draft of my first novel. I finished at uh, I finished at seventeen. Okay. I continued trying to refine that into my twenties until I destroyed the three and a half inch floppy that contained it by accident. Oh, and that was an act of that. That was an errand of mercy. Uh, <laughs> basically like I should write something. Any human would want to read. That might be nice. <laughs> I could try that. And then I tried that <laughs> and uh, wrote a book called Murderland. That was about an uh, alternate America where, Serial killing was legal in certain areas that were called safe zones, hmm. and <laughs> the protagonist was ironically a, uh, right. Yeah, no, exactly because I felt like society bends over backwards for predators, but cares a lot less about victims. And so, Murderland was basically about like a society where the sympathy for the predator has become complete. And serial killers are like celebrity athletes and like on Wheaties boxes and shit. Oh, God. And are followed, you know, and are rock stars. Did that ever get uh, published or? uh, It did, yeah. It was actually the thing that introduced me to the Bizarro scene. How old were you at that time? Uh, I was 25. Okay. When Murderland came out and I first started doing readings with, uh, other Bizarro authors and attended the first Bizarro con and found out that like I had a home there. Right. Um, so let's, how can I say this? I want to kind of step back for a second and talk about things that you were a fan of. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. In your adult years. Now, I think you had mentioned that you had started doing the translation of Dante's comedy. I think that falls under. That was in college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah. else, what else have you been a fan of in your adult years in terms of horror? Virtually everything. 
And I, when I say virtually everything, like I mean it, not like those people who are like, I like everything the country and rap. <laughs> I would say pick the top three things that come off your head because usually those are the most true. Okay, top three things that come off of my head. Uh, Jörg Wittgerite, like Necromantic, Der Todes King. Mm-hmm. Fucking mm-hmm. love that guy. Um, I would say uh, a le- to a lesser extent Von Trier, but um, I love the A24 movies. Uh, Hereditary and Midsummer and such. I like Ari Aster a lot. Um, Japanese, like Japanese horror from the 60s that's not necessarily Godzilla-based, like Goke Body Snatcher from Hell I like a lot, mm-hmm. and by extension, Takashi Miike. Val Luton. Huge fan of everything Luton-affiliated. 30s pre-code horror. Okay. Um, Mad Love is, like, one of my favorite films of all time. I, I fucking just love that movie so much. And what do you love about these things that you've just mentioned? Like, starting with Necromantic? Uh, Necromantic, I love because it's because it's body horror, and because it takes something that's like reprehensible and makes it life affirming. The end of Necromantic and the end of Ulysses, I feel, are kind of similar. Like the last phrase of Ulysses is "Yes, I said yes, I said yes." And when you watch the end of Necromantic, I feel similarly invigorated. I feel similarly life affirmed. And I feel like I've gotten close to death and walked away from it. And like, I feel like, you know, like I could punch out the sun and just like fuck all day when I'm finished watching Necromantic. <laughs> Necromantic is fucking boss. What What about it is life affirming to you? Uh, just the end, uh, the ending where the character just finds the capacity to enjoy himself and find satisfaction on his terms the way this person has interwoven like love and death, you know, just kind of skirted the knife edge between living and the dying and found something and found something beautiful there as repugnant and grotesque and morally wrong as that place he's been to was. And I find that something like very beautiful and very like comic and positive. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's a positivity to necromantic that I like a lot. They didn't necessarily see in Necromantic 2, which a lot of fans of uh, Wittgerich say is the better movie. What about Von Trier? Uh, Von Trier? I obviously do not... I don't like him as a human being or like any statements he makes. And I think that that man should stay as far away from microphone as humanly possible. Yeah. Uh, just whenever he can. Uh, but Antichrist is... A Dantesque experience, I think. I will never it's look at like, a 2 by 4 the same way again. Oof. It's, you walk out of it, <laughs> and you're different at the end of it a little bit. Yep. You've just survived a thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a really beautiful experience to be able to put someone through like that kind of challenge. And let them see what's on the other side of it. Gaspar Noé, I think, uh, did a good job with that. Mm-hmm. Though I thought, uh, I, I, I don't know. A lot of people like Climax, but I thought it was up its own ass, and it, <laughs> there was like a reefer madness thing, reefer madness vibe to it. I have yet to watch Climax. I've read the synopsis that, that I didn't care for. Yeah, it just seems because like this isn't what simple. LSD does. No, I have no particular issue with uh, 
hallucinogens. I think hallucinogens are cool. And I thought the climax was a little uh, rough on hallucinogens, but I feel that Irreversible is just like a beautiful, sad, intense, wonderful film. Another line to get around to watching. It's uh, it's a hell of a thing. I just can't uh, get in the mood to sit down and watch something that potentially has like a 10-minute-long reverse rape scene. No, exactly. It's it's very hard to be in a mood where you're ready for someone to ruin your day. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I want to feel ill. Let's watch this film. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's, I don't it's know. Such, I, I thought you were like that, It's such a pitch battle. <laughs> Not lately? Not lately. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> He's got enough real stress going on in his life. Yeah. Um, okay, next on your list was uh, Ariaster. Ari Ariaster, why just fucked uh, that up twice? Ariaster. Um, yeah, I, I, summer. I like that he that that he tells stories about uh, kind of the burden uh, mm-hmm. the the burden of the generations put on each other. Yeah, like Hereditary yeah. is this wonderful story about like all that shit that your parents say they did that was for you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't understand any of it and it's made the world objectively worse. Yeah. Uh, and that's just like every, every, bo- Why? <laughs> every boomer, every boomer congressman who you see like talking about like, we worked so hard for all of this. And then you look around at what the world looks like. Cause yeah. it's like, did you, did you though? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, they did. Like, they were just yeah, wrong. No. Yeah, yeah, there was. Yeah, it's just like we wanted none of this. Mm-hmm. And Hereditary is just like such a great movie about like a Actually, generation. No, right? They were just getting, not like, doing it for you. They were doing it for yeah, their kids. Exactly. Yeah. Kids, it's like so. we did this for you. We didn't no, do this did for you. For we you. did this for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that right. that yeah. And so I I like that a lot about Hereditary mm-hmm. and Midsummer like. Midsummer was interesting. I, it's it's I, I, I found past it the fact that it's supposed to be a, a story and it's more an allegory for failed relationships. Once you know that aspect of it, it, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yep. I do resent that they ruined a perfectly good bear with their garbage. <laughs> I think you should not stuff your garbage into a perfectly good bear. <laughs> and that's my one moral objection I have okay. to people in Midsummer. <laughs> I was wondering where you're I going. That, that I think that's going like, to be the, the audio clip for this interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who put all this garbage in this bear? <laughs> it was such a great thing. Nothing else from this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just let the bear be. Yeah. Right? What did the bear do to you? So we've kind of talked about uh, both what you were excited by and and turned off by about a couple of these things. Um, it sounds like you do have a social element now in terms of having other people that you know who are into horror, which is yeah, I, I like that. A, yeah, it's I like that a lot. I actually uh, I live with um, the guy who wrote Nightmare on Elm Street Five. Really, he's a New York Times bestselling author of The Light at the End, which is a brilliant book. And he directed uh, a segment of Tales from Halloween, but like, yeah, we uh, we live together and watch a lot of weird horror stuff. Uh, all right. So there's some interesting comments uh, from the, the adult section here about um, what you liked about horror. Um, 
finding enjoyment, beauty on on a person's own terms, mm-hmm. um, life affirming. I'm trying to think how to connect going from fears of you know loss of power, loss of control. Well, I guess life affirming is finding that. Yeah, no, exactly. Control. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I went from, I went from, you know, as a, as a young person, uh, just finding things like ideologically terrifying in horror films and gravitating towards those and gravitating instead towards things that actually, uh, that, that make me feel good, but in weird ways. Mm-hmm. I want to ask two questions that are not necessarily tied to horror. This is crossing any genre. And mm-hmm. also not relating to any time of your life, but across your entire life. I'll ask both questions at the same time because the answer could be the same or they could be different. Um, first question is, what is your favorite movie? Second question is, what movie have you watched more times than any other? My favorite film is actually It's a Wonderful Life. Huh. Okay. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's, for one thing, it's like it's socialist like propaganda. Yeah. It is life affirming and it just like it. They're just great acting moments where you see Jimmy Stewart break down when you see like Jimmy Stewart, when, when you see like Jimmy Stewart loses shit, it's really intense. Like I love that in vertigo and I love that. And it's a wonderful life mm-hmm. when he's just like, when he's yelling at his kids and he's at the lowest moment. I find that really beautiful. He's a great actor. He's, he was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and the film I've watched the most is probably Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Hmm. Okay. Uh, because I just, I love that monster talk scene and, and I, I love just fights with King Ghidorah. No way. Actually, mathematically, it's Santa Claus conquers the Martians. Santa Claus oh, conquers shit. the Martians is the film I have watched the most. <laughs> I've never even heard of that one, but that's, that's a nice title. I, I yeah. I, one time I like, was really sick on cough syrup. And so like I watched it for an entire day, mm-hmm. my girlfriend and I, and I continue to watch it whenever, whenever it's on or whenever I see it associated with things and watch all the riffs of it. It's a good Christmas. It's movie, just you know? like, it's, it's a, it's a good weird ass Christmas movie. Actually. Yeah. It's weird that the films I watch most frequently and that are my favorite films are Christmas movies, even though I kind of don't care for Christmas. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, Santa Claus Counters the Martians, I think I've seen the most. It doesn't make it good. I don't recommend people watching it. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just the thing that I've watched more frequently than other films. Mm-hmm. What do you like about that one? Was it, you know, other than just saying that it's weird, is there something it's, you can put your finger I, on? I really, I, I think, like, I just, I love the fake polar bear suit. Uh, like, fake bear suits, anything with a fake bear suit, I do enjoy on some level, like Midsummer. For example, hey, what's with the bears? I don't know. I just think they're funny. I just think it's really funny when someone's in a bear suit. I don't know why it's like, why it's like the silliest thing in the world to me. Okay. But like, there's just something really funny about circumstances when you can use a real animal and you use a guy in a suit instead. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, like I bear, am... bears are real. They are like, it's not a dragon dude. <laughs> like, you can find a guy who owns a bear. You know, so, so what and about they that, chose not second, to. What about that two-second clip in The Shining? 
<laughs> that two-second clip in The Shining, uh, that's actually, like, that falls more under the unsettling human behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say that's, like, half furry, half uncanny valley, kind of. That's, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's, like, yeah, that's, this guy's, this, this guy's doing, yeah, that's not, that's kind of not cool. <laughs> what the fuck is going on there? Yeah. I want no part of that. Yeah, okay, uh, back back to Santa Conker's Martians. Yeah. Yeah, and also just, like, there's just a preponderance of really dumb lines and <laughs> I love little bits of dumb dialogue like uh you know Droppo you're the laziest man on Mars just every time it gets me <laughs> just the idea that someone's made a value judgment about someone being the laziest man on Mars mm-hmm. and just the anger created by the anger created by that like I love when people make hardcore value judgments about someone in a sci-fi movie in a fist-shaking way and therefore end up like making stupid phrases come out of their mouth like in Zontar the thing from Venus uh John Agar says to his friend you're a traitor Keith the most diabolical traitor mankind has ever known it's like hmm. wow that's a really stupid thing you just said mm-hmm. and i just i love like when weird phrases come out of people's mouths in that way yeah uh, and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is just full of dialogue that does not seem to have been written by a reasonable human being. <laughs> and I yeah. love listening to dialogue that was not written by a reasonable <laughs> human being. There's a strange, uh, there's a strange poetry to it. Okay. So of these three movies, we've got uh, life affirming and great acting moments. There's, uh, I guess, the power of the monsters and the, you know, the justice from from that part of the conversation uh, and just humor and fun. Yeah. Um, so now that we've narrowed in on, on what it is that you enjoy, the last question is why horror? Because could you not find some of these things in other genres? Like for example, life affirming stuff you could find in probably a lot of different genres. The power and control yeah. definitely comes from, you can find elements of that in, all kinds of different genres, humor, same thing. It acknowledges that, that life is horrifying. Mm. It acknowledges that reality is not real. And when you say that life is horrifying, but you feel like it's okay that life is horrifying by the end of the film, instead of negating the idea that life is horrifying, I think there's something really powerful to it that I kind of key in on. And I like a lot. Because other film, other film genres that try to be life affirming try to do so by denying suffering and by denying insanity and by. But does it? Because I mean, I'm thinking a lot of tragic dramas do the same thing without showing the blood and guts. No? Mm, I think that there's uh, just. I mean, I, I, the one, the first example that comes off the top of my head would be um, shit. I can't think of the name of the night. Well, um, Magnolia, Vincent D'Onofrio, um, Joker. Yeah. What the hell is it? Uh, Full Metal Jacket? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and Full Metal Jacket has definite moments of horror in it. Yeah, yeah. I would say Full Metal moments Jacket of, moments of moments of reality breaking down uh-huh. and moments of insanity, uh, bordering on it. But I wouldn't call it a horror movie. But it touches. I wouldn't on call it a horror movie that, that you're talking about. Yeah. No, I it evo- it evokes some of those feelings. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that it doesn't it doesn't become it doesn't become affirming. Yeah. It 
says like Vietnam was terrible. Well, Crickets. well, no, well, hang on. I mean, so there's, but you're focusing on it not affirming Vietnam. That doesn't mean it's not affirming life. I mean, in some ways, it's you're grateful that you're not in Vietnam by the end of Full Metal Jacket. That's for sure. Yeah, it's uh, like you're uh, glad that you're not in the Hellraiser world, or you know, may, maybe. But I think that there's a security to the alternate moral order of the horror, horror universe that I find a lot more reassuring and a lot more approachable than things set in the real world. Because I feel like things set in the real world don't capture how scary the real world is. But I feel that horror captures how scary the real world is. Mm. But that it's kind of okay sometimes. I feel like just depicting something on screen, there's a certain amount of psychic distance you create. So I think hyperbole helps bridge that gap. Yeah, but and there horror too, is inherently hyperbolic. But there too, I feel like... You know, we talked about how in horror there are movies where, yes, there's that clear moral order, and also movies where there isn't. But I feel like that also is true in non-horror genres, too. There are movies... That that is true. I see it... I think I, I feel like I see it best in horror films, because I feel like just asserting that... The assertion that life is hell, and it's okay that life is hell... And you can sort through it. Maybe it's more that it's more violently hell. It's more that it's more. It's easier to track that it's hell. It's more there and it's more more present, and it's more visceral. Literally, yeah, (laughs) literally visceral. Yeah, and I I appreciate that aspect. The feeling that you're definitely that you're definitely in hell because I feel like it captures just how bad things are. Through the through a sense of hyperbole and through the capacity to recontextualize it instead of just looking directly at it, I think it's good to have the poetics there. I think the poetics makes it a lot more watchable and a lot more interesting for me than just seeing human beings suffer. I think there. I think I need a certain amount of poetry. Well, and I think hold, I need hold a certain that thought amount for of a Yeah. That- Hold the thought on the the poetry. What I'm I'm still going back to the the visceral part of it, and thinking, okay, so you know that gives it more powerful imagery, which maybe helps the poetry in that it makes it clearer. Um, it makes it clearer, and it's a might as well be. What do you mean, might as well be? If you just show Godzilla, is kind of a might as well for the atomic bomb, the A bomb might as well have been a 400-foot dinosaur that melts your city with fire. Mm. Symbolically, you mean? Symbolically, yeah. The British ruling over, your, ruling over your country and exploiting your people might as well be a vampire lord from Transylvania coming to, coming to take your women. What I would say to this is you're talking about the difference between symbolism and concrete imagery. Yes. Um, and arguments could be made for the benefit of either, but yeah. in your case, I'm guessing it sounds like maybe there is some personal uh, attachment to intelligence that makes you say, I would rather have it be symbolic and um, intelligent to, 
in your view, at least more intelligent than concrete? Like, because there are other. I would rather have it. I I would rather. I prefer the abstraction. Yeah, I prefer the po. I prefer the poetics. Okay, and I think that that's. uh, I find the poetics to be more truthful than just watching the thing, because that bridge. Because for me, that bridges the the gap between the event and the camera that you've had to put in front of it or the page you've had to write it down on. I feel like there's, you know, like every time I watch a thing about the Holocaust, I know that this can't possibly feel as bad as the Holocaust. Mm. You would have to come up with an amazing bit of symbology to really capture how bad that should feel. I know I'm looking at this and I'm feeling like 0.01% of the terror that actually got inflicted in the real world. And so yeah, I'm not sure there is anything like that could be that. symbolic. No, it's that true. And that's that. why Benjamin Adorno's like there where Adorno's like there can be no poetry after the Holocaust. Because the thought that there's nothing that could capture this was so prevalent in uh that particular philosopher's thought. Mm. So I feel like you need to use some amount of poetics to actually to bridge that gap successfully. Last question. Mm-hmm. Considering the theme of the podcast. Is there anything relevant about your thoughts or feelings or, you know, how you approach the world that you think is relevant to the kinds of conversation that we're having that we haven't talked about? No, I think this has been a great, uh, I think this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. You ask, uh, you've asked really good questions. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I, yeah, I, I like the questions you asked yeah. and, uh, I liked responding to them. I mean, we're at two hours and 45 minutes. So clearly <laughs> yes. like, it's about a yeah. middle range of the uh, the length of our podcast. We've had longer. Oh, right before. on, cool. Yeah. yeah I, so uh, yeah, so I've I've really uh, yeah, so I've, I've definitely felt that uh, yeah, you've you've hit on the you've hit on the very very interesting things here. And yeah. might I say, I am very impressed with your lexicon, sir. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You know bad words. <laughs> it helps when you're a writer. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So if we were to summarize, <clears throat> um, power, uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, last loss of power or control, yeah. maybe, maybe control is better than power because power helps, helps with the control yeah, loss of control and life affirming is, would yeah. be the summary I would come up with for what it is you like about horror. Yeah. Horror makes it, uh, horror makes it okay that to a certain extent that the world is hell or at least better equips you for the fact that we are uh we are walking around in what might what isn't the worst of all possible worlds but what but also certainly is not the best one yeah true and i think horror horror bridges that gap and gives us the gives us equipment that we need to to understand it to understand hell before we close call uh do you want to pitch anything on the way out Getting ready to turn in my next book, which is uh, gonna hit in October. It's called Charcoal, mm. and it's a uh, kind of a uh, kind of a splat punk variation of a uh, sort of Faust and the picture of Dorian Gray mm. about a possessed set of about a set of charcoals possessed by the worst, most wicked Victorian libertine act uh, like artist that Vincent Price never lived to play. Mm. Uh, and a young and and a young woman's experience uh, with an interchange with the potential immorality and cruelty of art. Ooh, now that sounds fun. 
Well, uh, looking at the calendar, this would probably get released June, July, August, maybe. So, oh, nice. Yeah, that's uh, there will be some ARCs probably around then. Cool. Yeah. So, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for uh, thank you for this. This was great. Yeah. And, and thank you to anybody out there listening. Uh, again, please do come visit us at HorrorMixesHappy.com. We have a, a list of the people we'd like to interview. If you can help us connect with any of them or know somebody you'd like to have added to the list, let us know. You can hit us up on social media. Let us know how we're doing. Um, HorrorMixesHappy.com. 